The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, adult themes, a little disturbing sexual imagery, and animals, specifically, a fox, and an eel. Thursday, the 2nd of July 2020. In this episode, we hear what some people think about other people who think very bad thoughts about statues. The terrorists are more popular than the President of the United States. We hear about the fear in America. Right now I'm too nervous to take a meal from McDonald's because I can't see it being made. And we hear... And, and, and we hear whatever the fuck this is. Every single one of you that are obeying the devil's laws are going to be arrested. And you, doctor, are going to be arrested for crimes against humanity. Every single one of you. This is, this is the 9pm official caroning of the American Doom Times. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, as you know, I do enjoy the odd political poll uh, with the emphasis on odd. So in the context of a choice having to be made in the United States in November this year, I think you know the one. I was fascinated to find this poll uh, on the Trump campaign website. This is the official 2020 Trump versus Democrats poll. And uh, I'd like to go through uh, these 10 questions. I think you should go through them with me. Uh, I'll read them out. Uh, but obviously, as always, there are links on the podcast website. Here we go. Question one. Who would you rather see fix our nation's shattered immigration policies? A, President Trump, or B, an MS-13 loving Democrat? Two. Who do you trust more to protect America from foreign and domestic threats? A, President Trump, or B, a corrupt Democrat? Three, who would you rather handle our nation's economy? A, President Trump, or B, a radical socialist Democrat? Four, who do you believe is more transparent with the American people? A, President Trump, or B, a lying Democrat? This is good, isn't it? Five, who do you trust to not raise your taxes? A, President Trump, or B, a high-tax Democrat? Six, who do you believe will always put America first, A, President Trump, or B, a sleazy Democrat? Sorry, my mind just drifted off there for a minute. Uh, the idea of a sleazy Democrat <laughs> in the right context, right? Seven, who do you believe will keep their promises? A, President Trump, or B, a lion Democrat? Now, I wish... Oh, that's lion with an apostrophe. But back in question four, it was a lying Democrat. We're getting into it now. A lion Democrat. Eight. Who do you believe will fight for you every day? A, President Trump. 
or be a low-energy Democrat? I see. Nine. Who do you believe is better for America? And I like this one. A, President Trump, or B, a low IQ Democrat? Trump is so obsessed with the idea of intelligence, you know, is, 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 isn't it? And I, it's clear that he has a whole thing about being called dumb. Because and, and, and that, that's his insult, right? They're just an idiot. They're dumb. Ten... Who will you vote for in 2020? A, President Trump, or B, a radical socialist Democrat? Total up your score and then throw yourself into the river. Yes, I believe that's what's called a push poll. I have, uh, if you've been listening to this uh, podcast in recent episodes, I've been fascinated by the uh, election-related advertisements put out by the Lincoln Project, which is a conservative uh, propaganda agency in the United States, whatever. They've been making some ads. Uh, Two caught my attention uh, just recently. Uh, Obviously, they are a bit anti-Trump. This one is called Truth. The most deceptive, lying president in history finally told the truth. Somehow, it was more shocking than all his deceptions. When you do testing to that extent, you're going to find more people, you're going to find more cases. So I said to my people, slow the testing down, please. Slow the testing down? Slow down our chance to save tens of thousands of lives. Slow down our understanding of where COVID is and how it's spreading. Slow down the steps to reopen the economy. Every single expert told him to test more and test faster. And now we know his response. Slow the testing down, please. That's why this November, more than ever, the choice is clear. It's America or Trump. They're getting pretty powerful. Uh, here's a second one. Um, I'll have some more commentary later. Don't worry. I will get snarkier as I go along. This one is called China. C-H-Y-N-A. Donald Trump is playing pretend again, saying he's the one to take on China. They can't wait. They know who Donald Trump is. Weak, corrupt, ridiculed. China beats him every time. No matter what he says, China's got his number. Trump even begged Chinese leader Xi to help him win re-election. Like a dog. Trade negotiations? China won. Trump's tariffs? They laughed as Trump hit American families with higher taxes. Trump's trade war? Farms and small businesses went bankrupt. China's military? Expanding without American leadership in the region. President Xi, Trump rolls over for China's president every time. Is it Ivanka's secret deals in China? Is it the 250 million debt Trump owed the Bank of China? It doesn't matter, because when it comes to Trump, China can't lose. The Lincoln Project is responsible for the content of this advertising. There's been a 
another Lincoln advert, which I won't play uh, because it's in Russian with with American subtitles, I've been told uh, by someone who is a, uh, well, who knows Russian, uh, that, that the subtitles aren't, aren't the best. And I was thinking about that. I mean, what is the target audience for the Lincoln Project? Someone watching that, and they're a, you know, a Trump faithful, they're just going to fake news. Hearing one in Russian talking about how Trump is essentially a puppet of Russia, again, they're going to see that as fake news. Uh, you know, maybe maybe the target audience has to be people who are willing to watch 60 seconds with subtitles, uh, something that will break them away from watching or rather listening to documentaries from NPR. Uh, but it did occur to me, it's the United States. Getting people out to vote is an important part of the thing. So reminding people who already think that Trump is a Russian puppet to get out there and actually vote and put their, well, not their money where their mouth is, put their democracy where their ears are, Um. I'm just trying to visualise how that would work. Anyway, that's part of it. I wonder where they're running this. Anyway, with Trump uh, obviously wanting a second term in government, you might wonder what his plans are for that second term. Well, he was asked recently. What's at stake in this election as you compare and contrast and what, is, what are your top priority items for a second term? Well, one of the things that will be really great, you know, the word experience is still good. I always say talent is more important than experience. I've always said that. But the word experience is a very important word. It's in a very important meaning. I never did this before. I never slept over in Washington. I was in Washington, I think, 17 times. All of a sudden, I'm president of the United States. You know the story. I'm riding down Pennsylvania Avenue with our first lady, and I say... This is great. But I didn't know very many people in Washington. It wasn't my thing. I was from Manhattan, from New York. Now I know everybody. And I have great people in the administration. You make some mistakes, like, you know, an idiot like Bolton. All he wanted to do is drop bombs on everybody. You don't have to drop bombs on everybody. You don't have to kill people. I mean, you don't. And I think, as you can agree, that is like a detailed roadmap for what Trump wants to do with a second term. I think we can all support an agenda like that with its, uh, as Kevin Rudd would say, programmatic specificity. Twelve more years, people. Twelve more years. Hello, I'm Stilgarian. Welcome to The Edict. Well, COVID-19, as you've uh, as you've heard or as you've not heard, I haven't been doing any more of the uh, uh, Quarantimes diary things, whatever I called them, mostly because I think for most of us, it's, at least in Australia, it's settled down into a kind of routine. Uh, we are seeing some things open up uh, and... <laughs> In Victoria, we're seeing that that's led to a spike in cases, so they're shutting it back down again. Uh, and 
and we all have a sense of unease, I think, don't we? I mean, even the conspiracy theorists, and I'll come back to them later, obviously, but even the conspiracy theorists must be feeling some sort of stress about this because they're thinking the whole world is is uh, conspiring to to really persecute them individually and specifically but on mass i mean i've been staying at home most of the time i mean i i kind of do anyway but as I've said before, we have an immunocompromised person uh, on the compound. I think I can refer to Bunjeri Cottages as a compound. Uh, so we want to take care of her. And as I've said before, I, I really think we're opening up too early. Um, I won't go into that in detail. That's all in the news in other places. But I do want to pull out some more polling. Yes, this is uh, from Essential. Uh, and look, there's links to all these things on the website, as they always are. This was done like about a week and a half ago. And because Essential polls on uh, Wednesday to Sunday, and then they publish on the Tuesday. So this is how Australians were seeing this. Uh, two weeks ago, basically. Uh, the first question I want to talk about is, how likely do you think it is that there will be a second wave of COVID-19 infections as a result uh, of easing restrictions? Now, as I say, this was, this was polled before this uh, burst in Victoria, so it'll be very interesting to see the next one. 20% very likely, 43% quite likely for a total of 63%. That's a solid majority of Australians think that, yes, there will be a second wave. Uh, and those figures are a bit higher in Victoria because they've, they've been having more problems, lower in South Australia and Western Australia because uh, they've been very fortunate so far uh, and, and so on. Uh, are there age breakdowns? There are total likely. It's not huge, but people 55 plus are more likely to think there will be a second wave than those in the 18 to 34 group. Uh, 67% versus 58%. Uh Click through for the full figures. It's interesting. Uh, the second question uh, I'm fascinated by, which is thinking about the future, how long do you think it will take for the following to occur? And they were asked oh, a range of questions all about COVID-19 except for a clarification question. So the first one, Quarantine will no longer be required after international travel. Uh, and the most common, 35% said one to two years. 22% said more than two years. Uh, and 4% said never. We will never get rid of the quarantine, which is interesting. Uh, the like, uh, when will a vaccine be developed? Again, the most common, 43%, one to two years, 4% never. 
the housing market will return to pre-pandemic levels because obviously the most important thing in Australia is fucking real estate. Again, the most common, 38%, one to two years. Uh, And again, 4%, never. I wonder who these pessimists are. Uh, International travel allowed without restriction. Again, the biggest, 39% at one to two years. Uh, Again, um, unemployment levels will return to pre-pandemic levels. One to two years, 37%. The population will build resistance to COVID-19 through exposure, so-called herd immunity. That was one to two years, 31%. I think people would just make, I don't know whether they were donkey voting, uh, but there are some minor variations in those who, who think it would happen more quickly. But here's the thing. Australia will pay off its national debt. Now, remember, national debt is this thing which can just go on forever, right? Uh, I should get someone on to talk about that, shouldn't I? of Australians think the national debt, one in 20 Australians think the national debt could be paid off within the next six months. And another 9% think it could be seven months up to a year and 12% think it could be one to two years. So that's roughly a quarter of Australians think the entire national debt could be paid off in under two years. I love polls. Another aspect uh, of the reportage on COVID-19 that shat me off uh, was some of the angles around the uh, the cost of quarantining returning international travellers in hotels. Here's a headline from the ABC. It's a few days ago, so the numbers will have changed by now. Coronavirus hotel quarantine numbers crack 60,000 people as governments spend more than $118 million. Uh, And they they then go on to say that more than 63,000 people have been taken by police or military, military escort into forced quarantine. Uh and housing tens of thousands of people in what is sometimes luxury accommodation has come at a cost. Blah, 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 118.5 million, true figure likely to be higher. Right. What shits me off about this is that it's a random big number. I should have an acronym for that, RBN, I don't know, a random big bullshit number. Sure. $118 million. Sounds a lot, doesn't it? It's a lot to you. Do you have $118 million? You probably do not. I certainly don't. But journalists seem to not understand how to do dividing numbers. I did divide the numbers, and that works out to $131 per day per person. Now, if you want to put someone up, in any kind of accommodation, meals and accommodation and security people to make sure they don't go wandering and medical checks and blah, blah, $131 a day is fucking cheap. 
I think headlines like this should actually reflect that. We have saved, I don't know, how much in medical expenses or maybe the measure shouldn't be money. Maybe the measure should be the health of Australian citizens. Gee, that'd be good, wouldn't it? Actually think of what the alternative would have been. And we have done it for a mere $131 per person per day. Bargain. Well done, Australia. Of course, things aren't uh, going too well in the United States. I, I started preparing this pro- podcast um, a little while ago. So some of the clips I've got are a few days old. This is from a television station called WTSP in Florida from the 26th of June. So that's, uh, call it a week ago. So let's get right to the latest coronavirus numbers today. 10 Tampa Bay is bringing you the facts, not fear, so that you can make smart decisions for you and your family. In the last 24 hours, another 8,942 people in Florida tested positive. That brings the total number of cases now to 122,960. It was the largest single day increase we've seen since the pandemic began. So here's what those numbers look like in context for you. See that black dotted line? That shows the rolling average. The orange vertical lines show the dates Florida enter new reopening stages. The current spike began when we started phase two at the beginning of the month. Love the music. So you've probably heard people say that this surge of new cases is just from the increased testing numbers. There's actually something to that, but this chart shows why that's not the entire story. Yesterday, 13% of everyone who got tested, tested positive. Now that should be around 5% to actually flatten the curve. As I say, that's a few days ago. And a couple of things hit me about that. One is that what would normally be, I assume, a kind of screechy local television news in Florida is is doing numbers like that and showing charts and graphs. That's amazing. The other thing that that hits me are just the numbers. Um, Australia has had so far four deaths per million population from COVID-19 the United States, 383. Yeah, I. it's very easy to make fun of America with their dumb fuck prime, uh, prime minister, president. He does a puppet. Well, I don't know. I don't know. But those numbers are hell, aren't they? Whatever happens in the next year, I don't know how long the world is going to be a very different place, isn't it? Let's stay with America for a moment. There's a lot happening in in the America. Here's a a brief clip. uh, The sound of Stacey Talbot, who's a sheriff's deputy in McIntosh County, Georgia. Right now, I'm too nervous to take a meal from McDonald's because I can't see it being made. I don't know what's going on with people nowadays, but please, just give us a break. Okay, so what's going on here? Now, I know probably a good number of you have already heard this story, 
but I, I'll I'll put it in context because I want to make some other points later. Officer Talbot, Deputy Talbot. Look, I'll let I'll let her tell the story. So I decided to come to the McDonald's at Love's on the Ford Avenue exit, and I waited in line to get my food. I had already done my mobile order so that, you know, people don't pay for my stuff because I just always like to pay for it myself. But I'm on my way home from work. Um, when I pull up to the window, they hand me my receipt. So I go to the second window to get my food and I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And so the girl comes to the window and asks me what my order was. I repeat my order and my coffee um, order and they ask me to pull up because my food's not ready. It's uh, an English muffin meal with a hash brown of coffee and I'm still waiting and they ask me to pull up. So I pull up forward and uh, a girl comes out with my coffee and just the coffee and she hands it to me and I have my window down and that's all she hands me is the coffee so I told her I said don't bother with the food because right now I'm too nervous to take it it doesn't matter how many hours I've been up it doesn't matter what I've done for anyone right now I'm too nervous to take a meal from McDonald's because I can't see it being made. I don't know what's going on with people nowadays, but please just give us a break. Please just give us a break. I don't know how much more I can take. I've been in this for 15 years and I've never ever had such anxiety about waiting for McDonald's drive-through food. So just have a heart, and if you see an officer, just tell them thank you. Because I don't hear thank you enough anymore. All I want is just my next couple days off to just be so chill. No uniform, no nothing. Just for a couple days. It'll get better, I know it will. This will all blow over. But hopefully it blows over sooner than later because... I just want some McDonald's. I love you all. Uh, okay, now there's a lot to unpack there. And I want to make something clear up front. She's just come off night shift. So whatever the hell has happened, she's tired and had enough and just wants something to eat and a cup of coffee. It's a very human thing. But let's step back from that. Alexandra Aaron on the Twitters, again, there's links to this, said what you're seeing here is one of the more, uh, one of the more benign outgrowths of the so-called warrior training that police undergo. And that training cultivates an us-versus-them mindset. It's the war-on mentality, the notion that police can only trust police and there are dangers lurking everywhere. 
And there were other stories in the media, true and not true, about police uh, under threat. They would spread through the grapevine. She's heard things. But the end result is that she thinks because she couldn't see them making her McMuffin and she had to wait that they were doing something sinister with it. Right? You heard her say that. I couldn't see them making it. Now, as uh, Alexandra Aaron suggests, um, you know, her kind of reaction would have been, okay, for whatever reason, it wasn't instantaneous. Stuff happens. But... American cops are trained to imagine danger everywhere, I suppose because there is with all the fucking guns out there. And that's what they see. That's why someone in a car just reaching for a pocket or the glove compartment, uh, oh, they're going for a weapon, bang, dead. Because if you don't react quickly... You did, as uh, Mazarin said, from day one, part of the psychological moulding that goes into making a police officer, there are two key messages. One, enemies exist. Two, you must kill them because it's a war. I've linked to an article um, that Alexandra Erin cites called Sheep, Wolves and Sheepdogs. Killology is the website. There you go. Killology. And I've linked to a couple of others as well. They are well worth reading to understand the mindset that American cops are trained in. A whole separate issue, of course, about whether that's right and about whether they should do something else. <laughs> Officer Talbot did say later, and she spoke to, uh, with the owners of the McDonald's. She did say she had not been mistreated by staff. She said she was nervous to take the meal because she has felt generally suspicious as of late. As I said, that's, that's not the only incident that's been in the, uh, the news recently in the United States. Uh, here's... A bit about another one, and this is the background I wanted to lead up to. Uh, this clip is from On The Media, the <laughs> the NPR podcast. God, I'm a hypocrite. Uh, look, here's, here's how they summarised it. Clearly, police accountability has been one of the summer's dominant themes, and just as clearly, media accountability always is. But we've had some recent examples that serve them up together deliciously. Three NYPD officers poisoned at a Manhattan Shake Shack. That's according to law enforcement officials. And it appears bleach was poured into their milkshakes. Shake Shack releasing a statement tonight saying they are horrified. And then overnight, NYPD detectives said that they determined there was no criminality by Shake Shack employees. The company says it is cooperating with the investigation and the officers are okay. Yeah, of course the officers are okay because they weren't being poisoned. They just happened to get the first milkshakes out of the machine after it had been cleaned and there was some aftertaste from whatever 
chemical they use to clean the machine, right? So they said, hey, this doesn't taste right. And they got an apology and fresh milkshakes were made for them and they went on their way. But they happened to mention it back when they radioed in. Hey, there was this thing and then 1 plus 1 equals 40, 70 billion, 11 And police officials started saying there was a poisoning, right? We heard that. Who were these police officials? Well, they weren't police. Turns out they were the Police Benevolent Association and the Detectives Endowment Association, not the police. And, And like police unions here in Australia, I mean, they've got an agenda. Two New York police associations, not the NYPD itself, they put out press releases, tweets, saying our officers were intentionally poisoned. They were targeted at the Shake Shack. Our officers can't even enjoy some time off getting fast food. They said, fortunately, they were not seriously harmed, but it just shows we can never let down our guard. Never. There are enemies everywhere. Uh, The voices you heard there, uh, Brooke Gladstone, uh, she's one of the presenters of On The Media, uh, and Eric Burlett, uh, who's a media critic. He runs uh, a newsletter called PressRun.media. Now, this whole thing was debunked by NYPD within hours, but <laughs> did that stop Fox News from continuing with their narrative? What do you think? Mike Huckabee, former governor, Fox News contributor, he was tweeting out after the story's debunked that employees at Shake Shack should be arrested for murder. Yeah, yeah, sure, why not? Why not? The problem, uh, Burlett said, and and we have the same problem in Australia, although not kind of the, to that extent, is that the news media has kind of, the, kind of this weird symbiotic relationship with the cops. Talk about local TV coverage. Crime is their number one story day in and day out. If you lose a connection with the local police department, what are you going to put at the top of the telecast each night? There is an over-reliance. Over time, it becomes a partnership. Hey, tell us what's happening. Hey, can you give us the behind the scenes? But there has to be a skepticism. There has to be when something comes across the transom like this milkshake allegation, there has to be an ability to hit the pause and say, what, wait, who? No. But just another quick point in terms of the journalism If you get lied to as badly as you just got lied to with the Shake Shack story, if you are told officers were intentionally poisoned when they never even had symptoms, as we found out later, you should never quote those people again. Well, no, you shouldn't, but, you know, you want to be on the drip, right? You're a journalist and you're covering the cops and it's exciting. There was another... uh, OTM segment uh, this week on the media, OTM, right? Got it. On that television series, Cops, you know, the one that's been running for 30 years. You can probably, you've probably got the theme running in your head now. Well, that was finally cancelled last month in June because of all of this uh, pushback against the US police. In uh, this other segment, they talked to a guy called Dan Taberski, who runs a podcast called Running From Cops. He and his team watched nearly 850 episodes of the show and did the stats. 
and cops shows roughly four times the amount of violent crime that they encounter in real life, three times as many drug crimes, and ten times the amount of prostitution. Because, hey, television. Right, this is a segment that is here because yesterday, the 1st of July, I tweeted that while shopping in Coles, I'd heard Coles Radio playing this song. Gonna get up, gonna get up, gonna get up. Gonna get up, gonna get up, gonna get up. And Yeah, that's enough of that because I don't have copyright clearance to play any more than that and I don't want this fucking podcast to be blocked by those big copyright bastards and the Digital Millennium Copyright Act which allows them to just kind of block things on complaint rather than considering the legality. Anyway, anyway. so Coles Radio was playing that right on time by Black Box. If you want to know the story of all that, look, here's a couple of things. One is... There's a whole story about this song. New Music Express had a brilliant article on that, as did others, because it's 30 years old, people. Uh, Link on the website. And curiously, Coles Radio, the supermarket radio station, is usually uh, the most listened to DAB plus digital radio broadcast in Australia. Now, that led to me talking about Muzak, right? The Muzak Corporation, M-U-Z-A-K. And I promised on Twitter that I would explain what I knew about Muzak. So, I mean, there's links to more on this. But Muzak was created in the early 1920s, or at least the corporation was, by Major General George O. Squire, who was the U.S. Army's chief signals officer during World War I. He worked out a way, and this was when radio still was kind of getting its shit together. He had methods of transmitting music across electrical wires. So he had this idea that he could pipe music via landline, basically, into into home. So he founded Muzak in 1934. He liked the sound of the name Kodak, camera company, so he called his company Muzak, but unfortunately, by the time he was ready to roll out, like radio had actually got its shit together and that was the thing. So he decided, let's go for a different market, background music for stores, restaurants and office buildings. And he didn't have access to a big library of licensed music uh, because there wasn't so much around. So he brought in bands and orchestras to record original versions uh, of old standard songs that he could play to them and and it kind of it kind of worked and it grew from there background music is purposely underplayed 
you take a song and you give it enough of a melody and enough of a texture, but not too much. It's a very, very uh, delicate balance. By taking away the ego of the artist, it allows the listener to fill in the blanks. Uh, foreground music distracts people. That's part of the trailer for a film called Thank You for the Music, a film about Muzak. You can find it on the, the Sheep Tunnel. Now, this did pretty well for Muzak, but then in World War II... They discovered, or so they say, at least they patented the, the concept, a thing they called stimulus progression. The idea was that you would have 15-minute blocks of instrumental background music and that would create a subconscious sense of forward movement. And they claimed that when workers listened to these blocks of music, they got more work done, they were happier and more productive because more productive uh, is a thing. Now, the, the science is probably bullshit, but curiously enough, um, the White House put in Muzak in 1953. It was wired up. Now, there's a whole bunch of threads that then come out from here. One is that Brian Eno... That guy, who's to blame for fucking you too, be becoming more than a Belfast pub band or wherever the fuck they're from. They're probably from Ireland rather than Belfast, I don't know. Anyway, he said this background music was bland and he invented the whole concept of ambient music to be something that sure was there in the background and filled the space, but also if you wanted to listen to it, there was depth to it, whereas Muzak kind of once you went down below the surface, there was nothing to find. The very first uh, Eno ambient um, album in that sense was Music for Airports, which, I mean, says it all, right? So that's part of it. Uh, but the other part I wanted to mention, all oh, that is preamble, I know, I'm sorry, is that in Australia... Ra and I assume in many other countries, the problem is distributing the Muzak to the supermarkets and shopping malls and everywhere where it's played. Back when I was station manager of 3D Radio in Adelaide in 1993, 4, I want to say. I think it was then. Anyway, one of the things about FM radio transmitters is that, yes, there is the stereo signal going out, but there's also two sidebands at lower resolution that you can encode stuff in. I don't fully understand the physics. Get a broadcast engineer to explain it to you. But one of the sources of income for 3D radio was that we leased out the rights to use one of those sidebands to the Music Corporation. 
and the supermarkets and whatever would have not your regular FM radio receiver, but one that didn't pull out the main signal, but pulled out one of the sidebands. Lower resolution, uh, obviously. And once a month, this box of cassettes, remember them? No, you young people, you don't. But anyway, there were these tape things called cassettes, and a box of music would arrive, and it would have a strict schedule of which cassette had to be played at which time. And if you were kind of on air and the person in charge on air at certain times, that was actually part of your job too, to flip those cassettes at the particular time. And part of the psychology was it, like, for example, in a shopping mall, people have lunch and they're feeling a bit kind of full and their metabolism slows down. So after lunch, after 2 p.m., after 1.30 p.m., the tempo would go up. Right, And that all of these psychological tricks in the music choice was to create a tempo, a mood, whatever. And I suspect that Coles Radio does the same, which is why I was told when I tweeted this, yeah, there are people who just tune in on the line and, and, and just listen to that. Fascinating stuff. By the way... Why is music called elevator music, or Muzak, I should say, called elevator music? Back in the early 20th century, skyscrapers were going up, elevators were becoming a thing, so people not used to them were scared about putting into a box, particularly when they didn't have attendance, they were automatic. So to calm their nerves, this soothingly bland music would be piped into the elevator just to make them feel calm. And if you've heard that, like you, like when an aircraft lands and before you're ready to go out, there's this kind of bland music playing on an airliner. Anyway, elevator music became the shorthand for any boring, non-threatening instrumental music. I've linked to a few articles about this. Most of my quotes there were from one by Mental Floss. But yeah, music, Muzak is a hell of a lot more than it appears to be. I think it's time to pass the plate. Hey, so thanks. <laughs> thanks as always to you, the generous listeners. Thank you so, so much. Uh, this episode, it is thank you to the generosity of Bob Ogden, a regular, Tim Holland, a regular, and also I got a belated birthday present from Peter Leverdink, who's also a regular. In fact, he's been a huge supporter uh, of my work. So thank you very much to you all. If you'd like to join these wonderful, wonderful human beings, uh, go to, you know where to go, stilgarian.com slash tip. That's stilgarian.com slash tip. Elephant stamp time! Elephant stamp time. Each mostly episode of this podcast, I award elephant stamps of approval for excellence in the category of thinking. And I have, fuck, four again. Let's go through these nice and quickly. The first one, 
is for the Australian government. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot to choose from, but listen to this story from Nine News Melbourne. We're here at a shopping mall in Broadmeadows, one of Melbourne's 10 coronavirus hotspot suburbs. Now, as you can see behind me, the overwhelming majority of people are doing the right thing, coming out and getting tested. Others, however, are unhappy with how their suburbs are being portrayed. We've just been pelted with three eggs. Their grievances against the media aside, I wanted to let you know what the business owners here are talking to me about. The overwhelming majority were not happy to talk to us, even fewer on camera. But the ones we spoke to say that if they are to go back into a lockdown, as the Premier and, Ch and uh, Chief Health Officer Brett Sutton indicated, that they need more support, not just financial support, but they need people out here on the ground to understand their culture and language to make sure that they're able to access that help. For more on this, you can get the full story tonight in Nine News at six o'clock. Now, one of the complaints that the locals in Broadmeadows in Melbourne had, when you think about it, was quite reasonable. We wanted information that we understand in our own language. Well, the news today how far into the fucking pandemic are we i think what i said 107 days for me the news today was that australia's covid safe app will now be available in arabic simplified and traditional chinese korean and vietnamese five whole languages months after the whole thing began so congratulations for some excellence in the category of thinking from the Australian government. My second stamp, and, and I'm now having problems about this. This is from, uh, this is going to go to, uh, I say, rather, to R.S. Archer, who's an author, historian and explorer. He apparently wrote something called the David Saunders book series. I don't know what it is. And I was going to actually quote big lengths of this, but it turns out he's a TERF, a trans-exclusionary radical feminist or TERF supporting because he was seen today uh, writing in support of J.K. Rowling's uh, writings about all this and what constitutes an actual woman. So this man may quite well be a cunt. I, I say that, but... This story is funny. He and his wife, uh, she's French, he's a dual citizen, British-French. They live in France, right? And he said back on June the 29th, this is on Twitter, I've put the whole thread up there. It's No, seriously, it's worth reading. He says, R.S. Archer says, he just had a conversation with a British couple who have a holiday home near us. They voted for breakfast. Uh, breakfast? Brexit, and they've made no arrangements whatsoever for what happens on the 1st of January. They have now discovered the reality of their situation, and the blame apparently is with Brussels. Now, what happens January the 1st? Under the deal, the kind of EU starts closing down the free travel for people from Britain, right? So... Anyone uh, who's British who's resident in the EU by the 31st of December uh, has certain rights and whatever. I, I, it's not worth going into this just now, and you'll hear why. But after January the 1st, doesn't matter if you own property in, in France or Germany, wherever, or Spain, you can't just move there and live there. You are no longer 
an EU citizen, right? You, you Brexited. You're British. You're not part of the EU. So it turns out, I read on with the threads, they've always assumed that this guy, R.S. Archer, was British. They only recently discovered that he has dual nationality. And when he told them and revealed all of his EU rights were protected, uh, he was told that was very unfair and typical of the EU. Then their son, who lives in the UK, he uses the house for holidays. It's a holiday house, right? He phoned and said, is this true what those bastards in Brussels are doing to my parents? We'll see about that. They have no right to treat us that way. And uh, this chap's wife spoke to the lady of the couple in question. She's in tears. She only just today realised the full extent of what's going to happen. They'd planned on retiring uh, in France in about five years when her husband retired. But, of course, now, now that won't be possible. The son comes back and says, I'm taking this to the top, whatever that means. He says he's not going to be pushed around by Brussels and his friends at work all agree with him. And then the son, the idiot son, as he's now being called, sends a message via WhatsApp. He says, and this is uh, quoting Mr. Archer, my wife and I are part of the problem, apparently. Wants to know what we're doing to help. Should have warned his parents. Farage was right. Not sure about what. Something about the war, the empire, etc. Now, I'm running short of time. I think this is worth you reading. But it turns out that the idiot's son is probably right as I'm recording this on a Eurostar crossing uh, and will be in France. Yes, we'll be in France late Thursday night after taking the TGV from Paris uh, to Bordeaux, I think this is. Uh, the son thinks that maybe he can bribe the local mayor to do something about this. The mayor is in hysterics. Uh, in fact, people from the local council in this town or village or whatever it is, they've taken days off work so that they can be part of this meeting to meet the son. Our correspondent uh, is basically saying, look, the mayor doesn't speak English uh, and the son, of course, doesn't speak French. The mayor does speak English, but but our correspondent is going along to be the translator uh, at, his, at, at this stupid thing fucking meeting you know the son's just wondering whether you know he can just have a few drinks with the mayor and have this sorted out because sure a local mayor in france can override eu migration laws um go and read it it's hilarious um yeah I will say uh, on the Facebook page of uh, this – this no, I'll roll back a bit. The son works as some sort of tradesman on the roads thing. He, he's told his boss he's going to France for urgent family business. The boss has contacted our correspondent. He said, yes, that's what he's coming to uh, sort out. 
Uh, apparently there was some bridge incident, which the boss is describing, and also saying he's a man of various talents but need watching, and also he's a bit of a spanner. Uh, the son, meanwhile, found out that our correspondent had heard about the bridge incident and said, it was not my fault that was down to Darren and his obsession with road signs. Sure, so there's that. And and the idiot son has a Facebook page which says, off to France tomorrow to sort out stuff for my parents' house, not going to let some frogs push my family around. Brexit is not Brexit is about not letting them push us around anymore. Might have to go to Brussels as well if they know listen, wish me luck. He then messaged our correspondent to say, How far is it? You know, from my house to Brussels, I said about 850 kilometres. He then said, what's that in miles as he doesn't do French lengths? At the time of recording, as I say, the idiot son is arriving uh, in Bordeaux, I think I said, yes. And the meeting uh, with the local mayor is scheduled for lunchtime Friday. Expect reports. Uh, go, go, go! Follow this on the twitters. As I say, the our correspondent may be a cunt. I'm not sure what we can do about that, but there you go. That's the story. <laughs> Big elephant stamp to the idiot's son, uh, Josh Taylor, who writes for the Guardian. You have heard him on this podcast before. He's just wondering maybe this guy is a J.K. Rowling sock pucker, sock puppet. I don't think so. There you go. Number three goes to that famous and our favourite Fox News presenter, Tucker Carlson, for this two-minute rant. The Attorney General Bill Barr says he is overseeing 500 separate investigations into rioters. Good for him. Presumably one of them is into the destruction of the Albert Pike statue in Washington. It took place last Friday. It was on live television. So far, no one has been arrested for it. It would change the course of this country's future if the Justice Department rounded up the leaders of Antifa tomorrow, along with every single person caught on camera torching a building, destroying a monument, defacing a church, and put them all in shackles, and then frog-marched them in front of cameras like MS-13 and called them what they actually are, domestic terrorists. Not protesters, not civil rights activists, not CNN contributors, but domestic terrorists that would be their new government-approved title. Once they're charged, it's official, in fact. They are literally, as a factual matter, accused terrorists. And that would change minds right away. The people destroying this country are criminals. Few are brave enough to call them that, so naturally their popularity grows. Everyone supports protesters. This is America. We believe in protest. But watch what happens when you start calling them what they really are. Most people don't like terrorists. Terrorists will never be popular, even among Democratic voters. So charge them for the crimes they've committed and call them what they are. Right now, the opposite is happening. The terrorists are more popular than the President of the United States, and not just more popular than Donald Trump personally, but more popular than the system he represents and administers. And it's obvious why. Our system is weak. It refuses to defend itself. Mayors let new countries sprout in the middle of their cities. Our leaders act like laws are irrelevant. Everyone watches this happen. It's a potentially fatal problem. Weak institutions die. 
citizens develop contempt for them and then they get overthrown. The same is true, by the way, for heads of state. When you refuse to fight for the system you run, you're done. Spend an hour on Google and see if you can find a single leader in the history of the world who stayed in power after failing to quell a rebellion. You can't. I think I, I just need to put in a pause there for you to think about what the fuck you've just listened to. Elephant stamp of approval for Tucker Carlson. And the fourth one goes to Carol Ann Collins, who describes herself as a clairvoyant who has the ability to speak with non-physical vibrational beings. She claims that she had channeled a message from the late George Floyd. George Floyd, remember? The guy who had his neck kneeled on for eight minutes and died saying, I can't breathe, and triggered this entire fucking thing going down in the United States? She says that when she channeled George Floyd, he said that we should choose life, choose to offer friendship, love and forgiveness, to help stop the suffering, and that George Floyd said we should go home, enjoy your family, tell them that you love them, remove my name from being associated with hate, Civil liberties are not what we need to be fighting for. I love you all. Oh, and also the real tragedy here is abortion. Carol Ann Collins has since deleted most of her um, social media presence. At least she realised, yeah, the grift was up. The grift was up. Oh dear, this podcast has been going for more than an hour and I still have a couple of segments left. I am going to keep going, okay? I am bold, persistent, I have excellent stamina and fuck, I've written all this stuff. I might as well talk it into a microphone. Conspiracy time. Uh, story and vice. I'll link to it. Apparently, Australian media is giving anti-vaxxers nine times more coverage than usual at the moment. They make the point that that's bad for everyone. I agree. Someone, not in Australia, but in Florida, at the uh, Palm Beach, I think, this is at a county meeting. Again, you may have seen this uh, on the line. Uh, there's the county meeting about the whole wearing masks thing. Uh, this woman is not impressed. You literally cannot mandate somebody to wear a mask knowing that that mask is killing people. It literally is killing people. And my, the people, we the people, are waking up. And we know what citizen's arrest is. Because citizen's arrests are already happening. Okay? And every single one of you that are obeying the devil's laws are going to be arrested. And you... Doctor are going to be arrested for crimes against humanity. Every single one of you have a smirk behind that little mask, but every single one of you are going to get punished by God. You cannot, you cannot escape God. 
You cannot escape God. I'm going to say that again. You cannot escape God, not even with the mask or six feet. Okay? Six feet, like I said before, is military protocol. You're trying to get the people to train them so when the, the cameras, the 5G comes out, what? They're, they're going to they're gonna scan everybody. We got to get scanned. We got to get temperatured. The kids have to go to school with masks. Are you insane? Are you crazy? I think all of you should be in a psych ward right the heck now. Because none of you, none of you know what the hell you are all talking about. This is insane. And then you want to open this meeting with a prayer to God. Are you praying to the devil? Because God is not listening to that prayer. Because all of you are practicing the devil's laws. What happened to Bill Gates? Why is he not in jail? Why is Hillary Clinton not in jail? Why are all of, all of these pedophiles that are demanding you all to, to listen to their rules? Why are they not in jail? Oh, is it because you're part of them? Thank are you, you part of the deep your state? Time has the deep state is going down. And if any of you are morning. in the deep state, you're going down with it. Um, wow. Just wow, isn't it? Deep breath, everyone. Deep breath. Why hasn't Bill Gates been arrested? I mean, it's a it's a question. Palm Beach in Florida, people. Alan Creasy on the Twitters. He's a Democratic candidate for the Tennessee House of Reps, so a state politician candidate coming up. I like the fact that he uses the pronouns he, him, and you all. Tennessee, people. He posted a thing on the Twitters the other day. Uh, this looks like it's been got from Facebook where they're, uh, again, a Facebook group complaining about these face masks. Uh, and uh, someone who I will assume for the moment is a woman writes, my husband had to wear a face mask on a business trip and now he has chlamydia. <laughs> yeah. Quite possibly, ma'am. That wasn't the cause. Calm down, only two segments to, well, two segments to go, three segments. Depends on whether you count them from sting to sting or topics. Here we go. Here we go. A Chinese man has his colon torn apart by a 16-inch live eel after sticking it into his rear to, quote, treat his constipation. This is the news you listen to this podcast for, isn't it? So this guy in his 50s went to a hospital in Zhangdong uh, province after having abdominal pain. Doctors were shocked to find a 16-inch eel in his body during emergency surgery. Uh, the patient said he had put the uh, fish into his uh, arsehole alive to cure constipation. Apparently that's a folk remedy, uh, but it had got stuck and it was kind of like a, a week later. When the fish was alive, which I remind you is an eel, it tore through his intestines before dying and got stuck in his abdomen. Uh, there are 
there are links to a video, apparently, the surgical video, which I have not watched. I have chosen not to watch. Uh, but the doctor, Dr. Lee, did say that during uh, the laparoscopy procedure, we detected that it was an eel. It had completely entered the abdominal cavity and already been dead. The doctor said that the man's organ, by which we mean his uh, intestines, had been severely infected and filled with waste matter. So pro tip, pro tip, do not stick a live eel up your ass. Okay. Speaking of eels in the asshole, uh, back to Donald Trump for a bit. <laughs> See what I did there? Uh, apparently, President Trump set off uh, quite the panic in the White House the other day because he retweeted a video of one of his supporters saying, White power! So, A, says this story, remind you that the president has 82 million followers on Twitter. And the tweet was up for more than three hours because the White House of officials were trying to get Trump to say, no, delete this. Uh, but the president was at his golf club in Virginia and had put his phone down. So that's good. For three hours, they could not contact the president. Just think about that. Oh, no, I hate it when people tweet something and say, just think about that. Just go, yeah, I'll read it and I'll think about it if I fucking want to. Or just let that sink in. So it did sink in. I'm not a fuckwit. I don't need you to tell me just let that sink in because it took you ages to have it sink in. I got it first time, right? Fucking hell. Sorry. Uh, apparently, the White House aides also tried to reach the Deputy Chief of Staff, Dan Scavino, to ask him to delete the tweet, but they couldn't get hold of him either. Chain of command, people. Chain of command. Most powerful people in the world. Oh, dear. So then there's this other thing... Um, just listen to this CNN story. As the administration downplays intelligence assessments that Russia was offering to pay the Taliban to kill U.S. troops, the press secretary did confirm Trump has finally been briefed on it. The president does read. This president, I'll tell you, is the most informed person on planet Earth when it comes to the threats that we face. I think we need to pause and let that sink in. She's saying that President Trump is the most informed person. So the question on, yeah, these press briefings, uh, there's more in the CNN report. That information was included months ago in a written intelligence report that Trump gets on a daily basis but rarely reads. The presidential daily brief is something I read every single day as vice president. The president read it every day. I was briefed every morning before I got to the White House and then again. So the idea that somehow he didn't know or isn't being briefed 
It is a dereliction of duty if that's the case. That's the uh, voice of Joe Biden, of course, former Vice President of the United States, uh, when the president was Barack Obama. Um, I mean, this is obviously about, well, when was this? About 24, 25 years ago. The president does read. (laughs) Hey, there's a low bar to reach. The president reads. What's your problem? Meanwhile, there's been a report that the Centers for Diseases Control, Centers for Disease Control in the United States, has said there's way too much virus to control the pandemic. The coronavirus is spreading too rapidly and too broadly for America to bring it under control. Those are the words of Dr. Anne Schuchert, Principal Deputy Director of the Centers for Diseases, uh, Disease Control and Prevention. She said that on Monday, that's only a few days ago. Twelve more years, people, twelve more years. If any of you live that long. Now, before I go, uh, and and I kind of think we've had enough podcasts for for this time, haven't we? But before I go, each uh, episode recently, I have been trying to throw in a glimmer of hope or two. And the story this time uh, is set at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, where there is a fox. For whatever reason, probably because um, there are fewer students around because it's all shut down, uh, a fox has wandered in. Now, some students have seen this fox and going, oh, placid little animal. Hi there, I'll give it a pat. And the fox has come up and bitten them on the hand because it's a fox, right? So at least three people have been bitten. Two of them have had to go to hospital to be uh, treated. So the university has said, oh, no, we've got to get rid of the fox. I mean, A, foxes are introduced species. They eat native wildlife. Uh, We should just get rid of the fox. Uh, And B, it is kind of a health and safety thing, right? I mean, you can't have wild animals eating your students, broadly speaking. But the students have pushed back. They have named the fox Frankie the Fox, and they want it to stay. In fact, they've gone as far as to say that Frankie the Fox should replace the university's current mascot, Clancy the Lion, because there's a lion on the university's coat of arms, because these, because we're a fucking British colony, and, and of course there's a coat of arms. So Frankie the Fox has a fan club and it's reached the point where the University of New South Wales grad shop is now selling limited edition Frankie the Fox plush toys and t-shirts with 40% of the profits going to the Sydney Fox and Dingo Rescue Group. Dingoes are Australia's native wild dogs. Uh, foxes are an introduced species. I don't know what's going on here. I believe the foxes were introduced for fox hunting back in the early days of the colony. But link on the website if you want to support these students who are trying to defend Frankie the fox, who's who's guilty of nothing but being a fox from these authoritarian 
fascists of the University of New South Wales uh, administration. Go buy yourself a Frankie the Fox plush toy. Do it now. Oh, but send me money as well. Well, that's all the edict for now. You know that all the shit's on the website. I don't need to tell you that. The next episode, uh, probably in a couple of weeks, depending on how things go, we'll see. Until then, I'm still Garyan. Wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.